So we pick up in Matthew 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Bless you. He agreed to pay them a denarius uh, for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and still found others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon each came, uh, came and each received a denarius. So when those who came were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. Denarius? Denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. You have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Denarius. I say it like 25 times, eventually I'll get it right. Uh, take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And here's his conclusion. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. As Jesus continues to teach his disciples about the nature of his upside-down kingdom, he teaches them a parable about workers in a vineyard. And ancient Israel was an agricultural society, and vineyards were a central and important part of the life of the community. And within that culture, if you didn't own land, and you, uh, then you were kind of without power, and so many people ended up working as day laborers. And in many cases, but probably not all, if you were a day laborer, you would go and wait in the marketplace and you survive day by day by accepting jobs and being hired out on the spot. And so in many cases, if you were a day laborer waiting around in the marketplace and nobody hired you, then in some cases you wouldn't eat that day. It was dependent day by day on uh, farmers and vineyard workers and people who needed help showing up and saying, yes, uh, I'd like you to come and work with me. So this was important, and the Jewish workday was kind of conceptualized in three-hour chunks, going from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So you have, and you'll see like kind of strange language around that all the way through the scriptures, even around the death of Jesus on the cross. It's conceptualized in these three-hour chunks. So you have 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., 9 a.m. to noon, noon to 3 p.m., and 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. And if you work a full day in this culture from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., then your common pay was a denarius. <laughs> if you worked a full day, that was common pay. Uh, and so the landowner goes out in the morning and he hires some people straight away and then he tells them to go and work. But then he goes every few hours throughout the day and hires more. 
And so um, in the ancient world uh, and in the modern world, the, the presupposition was that you would get paid in relation to the hours that you worked. So 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., that's the full payment. You know what it is. And if you showed up later than that, then you would get a fraction of that based on the hours that you worked. And so, when the end of the day comes, several surprises are in store for the vineyard workers. First, the landowner, who represents God in this parable, calls the most recently hired workers, those who were hired in the 11th hour out of 12, to pay them first. And we have to keep in mind that these um, workers were reaching the end of the day with nothing. So in their minds, they're thinking, we're not going to eat today because we haven't been hired today. The workday is over. Who wants to hire us at this point? There's only an hour left in the day. So potentially they weren't going to eat. And I think it would actually be fair to speculate, as the landowner asked, hey, why haven't you been hired? And so kind of lurking in the background is this assumption that maybe these aren't even the most desirable workers in the marketplace. That as the landowners came through, um, these people were kind of left out or were marginalized. Um, but in either case, uh, they would have felt the grace of the landowner in being offered a place and a job for even an hour, and then they would have been blown away by what is going to happen next. Because instead of paying him for one hour of work, he gives them a full day's pay for the hour that they worked. And so in instantly, those workers are overjoyed, but so is everyone else in line to get paid. Because they're all looking on and they're saying, hey, if those lame workers hired for an hour got a full day's pay, a denarius, then uh, think about us. Because we're, we're the cream of the crop, we're the good workers, and we've been out here for 12 hours. So 12 hours, 12 uh, denarii, Yes, um, that's half a month's pay. So they're thinking, uh, we're about to get paid half a month's pay. Uh, but instantly, uh, their, their um, joy and excited expectation um, meets with another surprise. And, and the second surprise uh, is that as the landowner continues to work his way down the line, the pay does not increase based on the time that they worked. In fact, everyone gets paid the exact same amount. So by the time you get to the guys who work the full 12 hours, rather than excitement, there is outrage. Are, are you serious? You pay the lame workers a full day for one hour of, of their lame work? And you pay the same thing to us for 12 quality hours of work? That, how is that fair, that they receive the same reward? To which the landowner replies, am I, not, am I not being unfair to you? Oh, sorry. I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the one who was hired last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the first will, the last will be first, and the first will be last. And, and we're kind of left hanging at the end of the parable. 
Because Jesus doesn't break this down for us any further. He doesn't circle back around to explain what this actually means. And so over the centuries, uh, there's been all sorts of different interpretations uh, as to what this really smart people actually arriving at different conclusions as to what all of this means for the kingdom of God in everyday life. Perhaps, some have speculated, uh, that the workers represent the Jews and the Gentiles, and the Jews are hired in the morning, they've been laboring uh, for God, so to speak, for millennia, and now all of a sudden, uh, the Gentiles are being welcomed, that's the non-Jewish world, is being welcomed in at the 11th hour, purely by God's grace and given the same eternal life. Or, or perhaps it's just referring to followers of Jesus, some of whom have followed Jesus in obedience their whole lives, and, and others of whom were the, the thief on the cross, so to speak, who come to Jesus in the 11th hour and yet receive the same reward of eternal life. And, and while there are elements of truth in all of those interpretations, it seems that the main thing that Jesus is after is actually the motivation of his disciples as they follow after him. And, and that point begins to come to life when we place this parable in context. In the verses leading up to this parable, uh, Jesus has several important interactions that are, that are well known. So first, for those of you who are familiar with the scriptures, you'll remember the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, a, a young uh, Jewish man who has power and wealth, seems to have everything in the eyes of the world, uh, and he acts in righteousness in God's eyes, and yet who is unwilling to follow Jesus in any real sense of the word. And, and so you have that interaction, and he leaves, rejects the invitation to follow Jesus, and Jesus uses that as this teachable moment. He says, hey, it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and within the disciples' worldview, this is, this is a confusing, a disorienting statement to make. Because within their worldview, if you are rich, male, and Jewish, you are blessed by God. You are among the greatest of the community of God's people on earth. So, of course, logically, you will be among the greatest in, in the kingdom of heaven. And, and then Jesus makes these statements in, in which he seems to imply that some of them might not enter the kingdom of heaven at all. And, and so you have to understand that how disorienting that is. And, and so uh, Jesus has a, a follow-up, or Peter, rather, that answers him with this. Peter answered him, We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? What's our reward? And it's in the context of this question, with, with this as the backdrop, this sort of tension of greatness and wealth and reward and what's in it for us, that serves as the backdrop. There's all of these pressing questions, which then Jesus speaks into using a parable. And what the parable reveals is that if you are uh, working for God, so to speak, uh, out of a desire to gain the world's version uh, of greatness and power, in hopes of elevating yourself over others when God's kingdom comes to earth, then you're acting from the wrong motivation. 
And you're going to be disappointed when other people who did not work as hard as you are then, by God's grace, and given the same reward. That, that's going to be difficult for you. But if you're working purely out of joy and responsive obedience to Jesus and not out of selfish ambition, uh, then you have mastered the correct heart posture according to this parable. And you will have a totally different experience in life with God. And we call this parable uh, the parable of the vineyard workers. So if you have your Bibles open, you can look at the top and uh, I'm guessing that's what the title is. I think it would be more appropriate to call this the parable of the generous employer. Because this is a parable about God and about God's grace. And so what happens with many of the parables is we naturally tend to focus on the human characters as they collide with God and with God's grace. And so there's a sense in which those are two sides to the same coin, right? You have this God of radical grace, and then you see human beings of, of different heart postures, sort of inside and outside the community of God, who, who are then colliding with that God, and all of these um, interesting events transpire which reveal the character of God. And so what this parable reveals about God is that God is going to act with such radical grace that, that when it collides with our wrong motivations and self-interest, the result is that we are going to get offended by God and what he's doing. If your heart posture is in the right place, then, then you're going to be blown away by the beauty of God. But if your heart posture is in the wrong place, you are actually going to take offense at God's altruistic grace. I think the story of Jonah is actually a classic example of what Jesus is illustrating. So when we think of Jonah, we think of the fish, right? Like that's the class, oh yeah, I know the story of Jonah, there's a fish. And, and we don't go much further than that. But if you actually go and read the story of Jonah, it's really short, only a few chapters. It is actually a intense, provocative story about God's call on the life of a human being. And what we typically overlook culturally is that um, God had asked Jonah to go to Nineveh, which in my mind was just like his fellow Jewish people in another town. Um, but what we need to know is that Nineveh uh, was actually the capital of, of an opposing empire. And the Ninevites were some of the most brutal people in all of the ancient world. And so what the Ninevites would do, and they hated the Jewish people, and so uh, what they would do is when they conquered parts of Israel or any other place in the world, they would come to town and uh, as a way of, they, they wouldn't just like economically dominate, they would come to absolutely humiliate and dominate the people that they had conquered. And so uh, the Jewish experience was that they would come to town and in some cases cut off noses and ears of people that they conquered, permanently disfiguring them so that they would never, ever forget who was in charge. That's the Ninevites. And, and God says, hey, Jonah, go tell the Ninevites that I love them. Um, no. <laughs> I know. 
And, and so Jonah, he gets on a boat, it's by land to go to Nineveh. He gets on a boat to go to a different part of the planet because he wants nothing to do. Rather than responding in obedience, I want nothing to do with the call that you have on my life. And then we get this thing with the fish, which I'd love to talk about in depth sometime. I'm sure you would too. And, but the fish thing, in my mind, uh, is, is just a testament to how much God loves evil people and how badly he wants to reach them. And so he uses the, the, the fish, and then post-fish, here's the story that we get. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I said, okay, get up, dry yourself off, let's try this again. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. This time, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by walking a day's journey into the city and proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And get this, the Ninevites believed God. This is shocking. Next slide. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. This is, and the king even joins in with them. This stuff isn't even happening in Israel, as they claim to be God's people. It's unbelievable. And, and here's the response. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Grace. And Nineveh, remember, is a massive city at the head of an evil empire. And so, it, as far as I can tell, and Matt Karsh will disagree, because we disagree on most things on purpose. <laughs> but as far as I can tell, this is the greatest missional victory in world history that just transpired. And, and then we get to see the reaction of Jonah. Because rather than celebrating God's victory, or even marveling at what God was able to do through his act of obedience, instead, Jonah is upset. This is the very next verse. That's right. Oh. <laughs> that was very fast. <laughs> But to Jonah, this, the redemption of that entire city, seemed very wrong. And he became angry. The, what, you're angry? You just became the greatest missionary in world history. And, and your response is, that's not fair. You can't give them the same grace. You can't pay them the same wage. You cannot act toward it. We have earned our goodness and our righteousness in your eyes, God. We have been laboring since 6 a.m. What are you doing with them? He continues. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? Didn't I tell you this would happen? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. This is how angry he is. Take away my life, 
For it is better for me to die than to live. He is so angry, he literally wants to die. What is he angry about? He, he is angry at God's radical grace. It, it is the stunning nature of God's character that so upsets him. And this is the next verse. But the Lord replied, is it, this is a rhetorical question, by the way. Is it right for you to be angry? Or in the words of today's parable, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? They're jealous, they're angry, they're upset. And both of these case studies reveal the same thing. That, you, that when your heart posture is off, life with God turns from glorious celebration of His grace to a bitter struggle with your own sense of, of self-righteousness and entitlement. You end up hating God and others for the very same radical grace that welcomed you in. Why? Because our eyes are focused on the wrong thing. The rich young ruler had his eyes focused on temporal, earthly wealth and status. And so Jesus says, well, that won't do. You're not even on track to enter the kingdom at this point. And then you've got the disciples who have shifted some of their focus toward Jesus and the kingdom, uh, but still have their hearts set on gaining the world's version of wealth and power just within God's kingdom come to earth. And this also puts them in a place where they are at odds with God's radical grace. So when the landowner says, next slide, are you envious? It can literally be translated in the original language, which I'm not very good at speaking, you can tell. It can literally be translated, is your eye evil? Which was a loaded term in their culture. But is your eye evil? What, what are your eyes focused on right now? What is the deepest desire of your heart? Because at some point, as you collide with God, that, that's what's going to be revealed. What is your heart fixated on? And so the point of the parable isn't that everyone gets the exact same reward. Oh, you see, the Jews and the Gentiles, they all inherit the same eternal life, and we're all equal forever. That's actually not true. It, Jesus actually makes it clear that we will not all be equal in the kingdom of heaven. And don't think that because I'm up here, I'm going to be greater than any of you. Jesus actually says, no, 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 you, you won't all be equal. And the way in which you follow me will, will actually echo into eternity. It will, it will actually affect your, your, the place you find yourself. And there are different ways to follow Jesus. And so compared to the alternative, uh, it will feel as if we've all won the lottery, okay? It's not like some of us are going to feel like slaves or, or whatever. But the point of the parable 
is not that everyone gets the exact same reward. Many people interpret the parable that way. Jesus makes it clear that that is not the case. Instead, we will receive different rewards based on our varying responses to the call of Jesus on our lives. The point isn't that everyone will be equal in the kingdom of heaven. The point is that those who are overly focused on their status in the kingdom of heaven and gaining the, the world's version of wealth and power and control just in that place in, instead of this place will actually find themselves sliding down the totem pole. And there will be this whole other class of people who in a humble obedience and responsive love just said, Jesus, I just want to follow you. And, and God's going to, to elevate those people. It says God elevates, he exalts the humble. And the really prideful, entitled people, they, they actually get brought down lower. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. God wants to elevate those people because God is hungry for kingdom conduits. He, he, he wants, and if your, your heart posture, here's what Jesus is getting at. Your heart posture and the focus of your eyes are actually going to determine how effectively God can use you as he builds his kingdom. All of those things are are, are linked together. Think of it this way. The kingdom of God, for the sake of our purpose today, let's imagine the kingdom of God is like electricity. uh, Think of it as God's um, life and and energy uh, being pumped into a dying world. Now, if that was true, human beings are designed as these like metallic creatures that are supposed to embody and reflect. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are meant to house the glory and life and energy of God. It's meant to operate in you and through you. So imagine a metal that's conducting electricity through it and into the world around it. So human beings were kind of designed for that purpose, but our our heart posture and the focus of our eyes will actually determine how effectively uh, we can conduct electricity, if that makes sense. And so if you um, look at different types of metal, and we'll we'll just for the sake of argument say that these are different heart postures. So lead, lead conducts 7% of the electricity it receives is actually conducted through it. And so if your heart is is led, so to speak, your eyes are are focused on yourself, or you're just interested in kind of gaining the world's version of wealth and security and power, then then very little of of that kingdom life and energy is going to be able to operate through you. God still loves you the same, you're still receiving the same amount of electricity as everyone else, but your, your ability to experience and pass on is hampered by the focus of your eyes, by the focus of your heart. It's limited. Gold, on the other hand, uh, conducts 70% of the electricity that it receives, and copper uh, that conducts 100% of the electricity it receives. I actually thought about making like a cheesy pastoral joke about God just wants you to have a heart of gold. 
Um, but that's only like 20%. <laughs> It's like C-minus or something. Uh, so, what we do for copper? Copper, on the other hand, is 100% conductive. And I must have read this wrong, but when I Googled it, uh, it actually said, this is Google's fault, told me that silver conducts 105% of the electricity it receives. Don't ask me how that's even possible, okay? But it's awesome. Here's, here's the point. If your goal in life and as a disciple of Jesus, is your own greatness, and your eyes are focused on you, you're functioning like lead. All of the love of God and His kingdom is all available to you, but you're just not fully receiving it or, or passing it on. And, and you can function like lead and be absolutely successful in the eyes of the world. You can have an incredibly successful business, you can have high-achieving children, you can have a wall full of degrees, you can have a successful church in the eyes of the world. And other people, and even followers of Jesus, would look on and say, oh man, that, that person, they've, they've got it. But God's not looking at that word. God's actually looking at the heart. And he knows what our heart posture is, what the motivation of, of our discipleship is. And, and so if you are um, functioning as led, not only are you not conducting the fullness of God's love and kingdom into the world, but you will also arrive at the kingdom of God and be offended by what happens next. Because you will face the same surprise as the vineyard worker. First off, you will find that as, as someone who wasn't really passing on what God gave them, uh, that you will be shocked to find that other people who were not high achieving in the eyes of the world are receiving the same pay, and perhaps even being elevated above. And all of a sudden, you're, you're slipping into last because you chose not to be a fully functioning conduit of the kingdom. Your eyes were focused on you and not on Jesus. And so if you think that you're higher and more worthy than those around you, then everything about God's grace and God's kingdom is going to be offensive to you. That's true of racism, that's true of sexism, that's true of class. Any, any sort of ism that you carry will be deeply offended by the grace of God. And it doesn't matter where you fall on the spectrum. And we, we are so quick to forget that God invited us into his vineyard. He gave us a purely by his grace. He invited us in. And, and that God longs to extend to others but we so uh, graciously accepted for ourselves. And, and so what offends us is that God wants to extend his love to the far left, to, to the people that believe they do not need help, to, to um, the people that are seen as wayward or addicted or the, the LGBTQ community. God actively wants to extend his love and grace to, to those people as equals to you, and that will be offensive to you, depending on your heart posture. And on the other end of the spectrum, God wants to extend his love and grace to what we would call the far right, to, to the hyper-religious, to the hyper-conservative, to the people that think they have him, but maybe miss the plot line along the way. 
You God's saying, I, I, I want to extend everything. If you think you're better than any of those people anywhere else on the spectrum, or believe yourself to be more entitled to what God wants to give, then you are going to be deeply, deeply offended by the way that God wants to show His love and grace. And, and so, what happens is, when, when our heart posture is off, all of those things become uh, uh, offensive. But when our heart posture is correct, when we have a heart of obedience to chase after Jesus, you become a powerful conduit of the kingdom. And, and as Jesus says it, when you seek the kingdom first, everything else will be granted to you. Right? Like, don't worry about worldly stuff. Focus on my kingdom. I'll give that to you. Don't worry about your future status in the kingdom of heaven. Just focus on me. Put the kingdom first. Put me first. Follow after me in obedience. And I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to elevate the people who have set themselves aside for my sake. All else will be granted to you. And, and it sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but it, it functions just like anything else. Our culture increasingly is kind of losing sight of God and making kind of happiness is our, is our aim. We just, we just want to be happy. But think about the way that happiness works. When you pursue happiness for its own sake, in the absence of God, you will end up miserable. This happens all the time. It, all of a sudden, happiness becomes this elusive, fleeting thing that's constantly slipping through your fingers. You know who the most joyful people on earth are? They're, they're the people who aren't trying to be happy all the time. They're just following after Jesus, and they're finding incredible joy in it along the way. Jesus is saying, hey, you know who the greatest in the kingdom are? The people who aren't trying to be. The people whose aim is an obedience rooted in an awareness of the constant love and grace that God is showing us. That's it. That, that's the whole point. We just live responsive and obedient lives that are reflective and indicative of the grace and love we are constantly receiving, even as we are gathered here today. And so I just want to leave us, as we end, with a really simple question. And I think, in my studying and praying, that this is the question buried in the parable. As the vineyard workers struggle with grace and reward and motivation and entitlement, as the young uh, rich ruler turns down Jesus for the sake of earthly reward and status, and as some of the disciples follow after Jesus um, for what they sense will be a very similar reward and status in the kingdom, Jesus asks them, in essence, why are you following me? What, what's your goal? Is it in hopes that I'll just bless whatever uh, ambitious plans you already made for yourself? Is it so that you can achieve um, greater wealth and status in this world or in the next? Or is it a responsive love to the unfailing love I have for you? Because the way of Jesus includes resurrection and glorification and being crowned uh, with, with honor and glory and power. For Jesus, that's what's happening to him, 
ends for those who follow him. We love that part. What we forget is that the road to get there was the road of the cross. It was the road of self-abandonment and, and humility, where, where all of our self-centered ambition is thrown out the window. And Jesus says, as you're walking on that road, the world will look on and say, surely they are last. And God will look on and say, it certainly does look like that. But the last will be for these are the people I'm going to elevate. And all those people out front, what the world says are first, they're in for a surprise. And they're going to be angry, and they're going to be offended by the radical grace that I have. And, and the way that I pour it out on the ones the world said were unworthy. Let's pray.